on some level does affect the other quality, if I remember correctly, but whatever. Are you complaining, Joel? Yes. Are you starting again by complaining? This time, not about NCs, not about particular people, <laughs> not about... Yeah, like Joel, Joel's been spending episode after episode just shitting on everyone in EYP. And now he's like shitting on the tech. What is an EYP podcast without some complaining? Am I right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Like mm. we, we even have like so what what one of the things that we do is like the fuck ups and so every tenth episode Yeah. It's now <laughs> dedicated to shitting on sessions and shitting mm. on when things went wrong, horribly wrong. And we actually had a suggestion the other day was, Yeah, but can't you also do a version where you talk about good stuff mm. <laughs> and things that made people smile and stuff? We're like, Oh yeah, that, that also happens in UIP, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. So you invited me for that reason, I suppose? Or... <laughs> wow. Well, um, I, I feel like you've definitely dabbled in both. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh, I'm going to take it as a compliment. You should. You definitely... <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've already spent multiple episodes bashing on the Yerevan training, so I think we can put some blame on you for that. Listen, we were the vulnerable big hearts there, and... I think it deserves some credit. Okay, the cat now wants to leave the room. Damn it. But okay, I'm the just going to... The cat wants to eat what? The cat wants to leave the room, so it might mean that she's going to start meowing soon. Yeah, uh, I also wanted to leave that cat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't be so angry at cats. They're, they're beautiful, innocent creatures that just have no idea about anyone apart from themselves. I love cats. Nothing to do with the actual cat. No, Joel was making a joke, Nathan. You didn't get it. It was a cat pun. Ah. <laughs> uh. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a bit slow there. Sorry. The native speaker. Hey, I, I haven't had much sleep. I was I was partying all night. Yeah, so. how was it? How was some good old London raving? Are oh, you girl. actually still in London, right? Or I don't know, mm-hmm. your life changes a lot, so I'm like <laughs> Yeah. London. I've been like staying here for the past almost ten years now. Wow. And and you're in That's Poland? A lot of years. No, I am actually in Vienna right now. No. So I am more permanently more long term in Germany, but I'm doing an internship in Vienna. Okay. So I am going back to Germany in March, in like end of February. Nice. Yeah. How how them German but now skills I'm in going? Vienna only for a few months. Uh, uh, do you know speak German in your classes or does it tend to be English? <laughs> okay. No, it's all in English, yeah. But okay. I have to say I've not improved a lot since I had my German classes in high school. So <laughs> there is a lot of room for improvement there still. <laughs> yeah. It's this like classic EYP thing where you kind of immerse yourself in a country full of internationals and then just all speak English and then learn the odd phrase to say thank you and please and order a beer. I don't want to associate myself as a part of that culture, but 
<laughs> I might also be indulging in it sometimes, yes. <laughs> Very guilty. Are you also one of these white people that call themselves expats instead of Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. I am a class-aware okay. woman, and I do not go into the shit of expats. It's all migrants. <laughs> <laughs> Write it on the wall. But it is true that in those societies, it is, it's, it's very easy to build communities where you don't have to make too much of an effort. Like I grew up in France and I grew up in Normandy. When I moved there in 2004, there were 20,000 Brits living in Normandy. Oh, they called themselves immigrants. expats, mm-hmm. immigrants. But hey, 20,000 British immigrants uh, living in Normandy. And we basically built British villages. We built British like pubs and stuff like this. And 90% of our customers would be other Brits who live over there. And mm. myself, like during the day, I go to school and about a quarter of my class were Brits. So I could just mainly hang with them and then didn't have to learn French that way. And then if I get stuck in a test or something, I can ask the teacher, can you translate this? Or I could have a dictionary with me to try to translate some stuff to get by. Mm. And when I go home, I'm with my family. We only speak in English, all of our customers. And we built a, a holiday park and as many Brits who had come over or, or, or Dutch and like everyone would just speak English anyway. So I spent literally my first five years in France with only getting by with basic conversational French. That is sad. I'm Horrible. so sorry. But yeah, <laughs> I love how it's called an expert if you come to a country from a country which is seen as like quote unquote developed but if you come from a country Mm. which is seen as quote unquote undeveloped you are a migrant and that's something that i think people should be more aware of when they use such Mm. terms i'm very like skeptical about the whole expat culture and i think people need to be very self-reflective when they use this term towards themselves so in, in in Yerevan, I'm not sure if I told you that story, but um, I went on the meal with the ambassador uh, of the UK to Armenia, and mm-hmm. it's either the ambassador or the consulate. I, I never know the difference, but yeah, it's one of those two. And then we we sat down with the like UK delegation. I think there's only like four or five people there, plus myself. Sat down and had a meal. And when we're having a chat about stuff, we can ask the question, cool, so what is your day-to-day? What is it that you do here? What is the main purpose of this kind of representation in another country? And he kind of talked about certain things in terms of security, in terms of making sure information is transparent. But then he also said, it's in terms of like helping, he said to me, it's in terms of helping British expats find work. And I was like, hmm. And then he went to move on. I was like, yeah, can we actually step back there? So I noticed you used the word expat mm-hmm. when talking about Brits living over here. Well, of course, you know, if we ever, if you have an Armenian family living in the UK, we never call them expats. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering why you chose that language. And then he's like started by kind of remixing a bit and kind of sidestepping and be like, oh yeah, I know there's a cor- political correctness debate about this. <laughs> but no, um, and then he, he tried to kind of say that he was right here by saying, what actually happened is that, you know, uh, expat comes from the word expatriated. So when you're working for a company in country A and that company sends you to, to country B to continue some kind of role, then you are being ex- expatriated over there. I said, cool, 
but you just used it in the context of helping Brits People when they come the over job. to Armenia then find work. Exactly. Yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> and then mm. he was like, uh, and then change topic. <laughs> oh, I love when you catch people in these uncomfortable situations. That makes me very happy. I'm so proud of you, Nathan. You go and catch those ambassadors for their inappropriate usage of the term expert. Although the Armenian NC weren't too happy. Because, I mean, it's probably kind of lost a future sponsor there. Because <laughs> I wanted to check his privilege. Uh, that's something that... I find it so sad about like being a part of an NGO in the modern capitalist society where you mm-hmm. need the funds and you need the sponsorship of certain places, which are also kind of going against the values that you're promoting by this informal education. So yeah, it's uh, not an easy topic. I don't know how radical can we be on this podcast. <laughs> as radical yeah. as we want to be. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. This podcast is not sponsored by the international office or any officially website. <laughs> the opinions supposed to this podcast are solely for the hosts and their guests. Good disclaimer. <laughs> anyway. But anyways, what, what, what one thing like we're, we're talking earlier on about about how it is really difficult in UIP where you have to kind of you have certain values you're aiming for you want to put on an event in order to strive to those values but then sometimes you need to make sacrifices and then you sacrifice those values in order to get to those values but yeah that that stuff uh, mm. did you have like any particular examples or something that you went through where you had to make those choices or your team had to sacrifices okay I can't really think of something specific right now. If you are trying to hint on the train story, I did not sacrifice any of my values. Or not. What something story? else. Oh, go, go, I, I can't remember that one. Go for it. What was the train story again? <laughs> that one time when we might or might not have changed the names on the train tickets to... Oh, that... <laughs> Um, to transport some of our officials. And honestly, it did not really... I I tell the story to everyone because I just find this hilarious. And now growing up, I realize that it might look like I have, in a way, sacrificed my values for some, I don't know, good of EVP, but it was not like that. Basically, the way it functions in Ukraine, you have like... Ukrzaliznice, which is the main railroad company, and they sell tickets. You can buy them online, which is like super easy, chill, and it has the name of a passenger on the ticket. The thing that you need to know is the tickets in Ukraine are like the prices are not compromised by some demand, like it is in a lot of Western European countries, because it's basically like a public company from the last time. Okay, now they're getting privatized, I guess. But it used to be at the moment when this name was faked. (laughs) And the prices are stable, so it's not like you are buying one ticket and then two weeks later the ticket is more expensive. 
But we had a situation when we already got the tickets for officials and one of the officials couldn't make it. And we were like, well, we still have the ticket, so we're just going to put the different name on it. And I just legit used like paint to write a different name on that ticket and I felt like totally not guilty I was I didn't even think that was wrong it's just the only thing why this is important to do is because in Ukraine we have trained ladies and trained men who just like check the names of the tickets it's nothing special they just make sure that the identity is the same it doesn't happen like now I live in Germany and People like never check your IDs, you know, but in Ukraine they do. So we mm -hmm. were like, okay, we need to change the name because of the fact that it's, you know, the ticket is now for another person. So that's why we're like, and it, it, the way to do it officially takes like two months with Ukrainian bureaucracy. So nobody does mm -hmm. it through like official way because you need to like, you can't actually just change the name of the ticket. You need to take the ticket back to the Ukrzaleznitsa and then they give you the money back and then you buy the new ticket and then it's just like a very complicated procedure. So we were like, we're just going to like, you know, put a different name. It's like really nothing horrible about it. And we did. And it did actually work a lot of times for us and nobody ever was suspicious except of that one time when we went to the EVP Ukraine training camp which I was head organizing with Olya Beroshenko mm -hmm. and at that moment something happened and the train lady I think she overheard someone from our officials saying like oh so this person is not coming and you are instead of that person going on the train. And then the train lady got suspicious and she's like, oh, someone else, I should check. And she just like decided to check the names. And then on the base, like on their database, they had a different name than the one on the ticket. And so the train lady freaked out. She was like, this is against the law. You're going to be... We're going to call the police. And everything was just so, mm -hmm. so crazy. And we were legit sure we're going to go to police. It was on the way to the training camp. It was just like day zero. And I was like, great, my whole project is going to jail. This is like <laughs> exactly how I had organizers dreaming about their first baby project. And not going to lie, I was very scared that EYP Ukraine is going to go through some legal issues but then one of the officials of our team because i was on a different train also she talked to the train director and she explained the situation and the train director was like yeah it's okay no worries <laughs> so in the end everything was fine but the amount of drama the amount of stress the amount of phone calls i made to my like friends who studied law at that moment over like half an hour I, yeah, it was an experience. But now, like, looking back, I tell it as a funny story to my friends. But back at that moment, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. I was just like, this is the end of my life, <laughs> <laughs> of everybody's life, of also the people who had this, of the person who had this ticket. Uh, yeah. We should definitely get, get Vika on the podcast to get the other side of that story of what happened with the train conductor. It's so wonderful. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do a podcast on the train <laughs> story. I have. I feel like Ukrainian EVP, a lot of our stories are about taking trains because yes. we 
take a lot of trains for our sessions because Ukraine is a huge country and I think Ukrainian train experience is also like its own kind of it's its own life and when you take a train it's usually a night train as well you have a lot of things going on you meet people you make lifelong friends you discover a part of yourself you never knew existed it's it's I recommend everyone who hasn't been to Ukraine yet um, catch a train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my first time on the Ukrainian train was uh, going to Ivano-Frankivsk in 2013 with Marilu, and Marilu was really ill at the time. She had like flu symptoms, kind of coughing up, and she just wasn't feeling well. And then this Ukrainian dude kind of like like so, was, and we had like a cabin just for, uh, actually. Yeah, we we had a uh, second class, so we we had like the four berth cabin. So me and Marilu had beds on one side, and then two other random dudes had beds on the other. And like they could see that Marilu was like coughing and stuff like that. So the guy kind of gets out his flask and gives, um, g- gives this whatever's in the flask to Marilu, and it's like drink, 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 drink this. Th- this this will cure you. Oh God, I'm sorry. So, but, but like saying this either in ukrainian or in russian we don't know we can't understand they can't like <laughs> oh, we're just like talking through gestures and stuff like this and she's like fuck it let's do it so it's like going for it it's super super strong vodka but it cleared it for her and she started to feel much better god the amount of power vodka has in the slavic medicine um mm-hmm. i mean of course like this is very questionable and problematic the way that people are peer pressured into drinking it because of some kind of med like also Lukashenko like the president uh so-called president of Belarus uh was like last year also telling people when not last year oh my god two years three years ago god oh my goodness it's 2022 people yeah and I remember he was also like um persuading people to drink vodka and eat garlic or something to get rid of coronavirus. And I'm like, come on, this is so immature and so stupid and people need to be finally getting some more, I don't know, approach to medicine. But yeah, it's true. It's still there. People still think vodka is the best medicine for everything. And it's sad. What can I say? But in Ukrainian trains, you can really see vodka culture shine through. And not just that. Okay, I don't want to say that it's like this all the time because not everyone drinks in the train. A lot of people do, mm-hmm. but I think it's a bit shocking when you see people drink on a train. For us, it's not so shocking because we kind of get used to it traveling around. What I love about trains and train culture is not only drinking, Drinking is not the part I like, but what I like is the way people start having this experience of eating together, especially like they start to, they have like a newspaper that they take, uh, like usually older people, and they take this newspaper and they put it on this table and then they put like a grilled fish, grilled chicken. I'm not kidding. I've seen grilled chicken full size put on that newspaper. And then they have like all this like mayonnaise, boiled eggs, 
like is a must have. If you don't have a boiled egg, you are not on the Ukrainian drain. And then you have like all of these aromas from all this grilled shit and like boiled eggs and boiled potatoes. And everyone is just like feeling this taste and smells. And now like, okay, now it's the time to eat. And it's like 15 minutes since the train departed. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. I love. And then people share food and get to know each other. I mean, of course, not all the time, but sometimes it happens. And I have to say, I think that going on a train for me has always been like, I learned so much about my country by being on a train. I learned so much about, because I feel like we all can relate to this living in a bubble kind of experience. And then we, it's hard to leave this bubble once you go to university and your work and you always see the same kind of people. And the train in Ukraine, this is where you get out of this bubble. And that's where you actually start to understand the people you live with better and the country you live with in better. And I think that's the most precious thing about Ukrainian trains is that this ability to communicate with everyone and just understand people better and also challenge yourself in the way you think. And yeah, I think it's something people should be more open to, like communicating with strangers. Mm. And trains give a great platform for that, for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm a big, oh my gosh, if you people don't know, there is a group on Facebook called New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens. And if you love trains, this is my shout out to every train <laughs> nerd who's listening right now. Please follow that group. There are so many train memes and just in general, like transit-oriented and urbanist and like anti-capitalist rhetoric and i'm i'm a big fan of that so yeah sorry okay i'm was talking a, too much <laughs> what, was that a planned pun talking about trainers so people who love trains or was that a happy accident it was a happy accident sorry happy accident. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> i had um tw- tw- on two different train trips in ukraine um, I I gave accidental bribes, and I didn't know no. I gave a bribe. No, I, I, I children are listening to us. What are you saying? I'm, I'm saying it's accidental <laughs> bribes. So, okay, first time. Here, I had to do some editing magic because Nathan tends to repeat his stories a lot. If you want to hear the first story of Nathan bribing his trade official, please go to listen to episode number eighteen with Austrian Cyrilniks. And we continue with the episode. And then the other time was, I think, actually coming back from all of that trip. And I was going from, I think, Lviv to, actually, no, from, 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 even from somewhere more around uh, St- Strat, Strap, uh, somewhere, somewhere close to Yarenche, uh, being with STR. Stri, maybe? Stri, that's mm-hmm. the one. Okay, from Stri, um, I was catching a train to go to Budapest. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get in there and I was going to bring some cigarettes to some friends because of course, you know, in Ukraine, I could buy 10 packs for 10 pounds. Whereas in the UK, like my friends paid 10 pounds for one pack. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'll do a friend a favor and bring back a pack of Marlboros. I'm, I'm in the train. I'm heading back. That's a good friend. And then, yeah, then, really but caring the for the that, health of your friends, Nathan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I should care more for the health side. But like, I'm I'm traveling over the land border, and of course, I didn't know that the land border has different rules compared to the air border. So, if you're flying, you can carry ten packs. 
if you're c- crossing the land border, it's one closed pack and one open pack that you're allowed. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. I thought it was mm-hmm. the opposite. Okay. So, like on the Ukrainian Polish border, you have that beautiful thing where you have ah, a line true. of people crossing over with a bottle of vodka, a closed pack of cigarettes, and an open pack of cigarettes, mm-hmm. cross over, selling it, come back over, and it's like that non stop mm-hmm. circle. Uh, but basically, the, 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 the security, like, uh, we get to the border patrol. They come into my room and the guy starts talking to me. He says, like, have you, have you kind of got anything that you need to declare? I'm like, yeah, I've just got these cigarettes, but you know, I, it's like, oh, and he started trying try to explain to me, but I couldn't really, like, we didn't really have a common language. And so we kind of struggled. And then he was just like, he just took a packet of cigarettes, put it in his pocket, tapped it and walked away. And I was mm. like, did I just bribe a customs official? <laughs> and I realized, shit, I did again. Mm. Yeah. Maybe it's... I can see a pattern here, Nathan. Do you also notice a pattern? Because What's the pattern, Mariam? You're bribing Ukrainian officials? I mean, I, I, I both times. Okay, the first time, I thought I was legitimately buying a ticket. And the second time, I have no idea what's going on. He's put a, a pack in his pocket and walked away. And I'm like... I guess. Mm. And then I, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to wait here. Then someone else is going to come in and take the rest. But then the train continued. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, was that a bribe? That's crazy. I actually lived in Ukraine, like, you know, pretty much all my life, except of the years when I have done my university abroad. And I've never actually had to bribe anyone. And nobody ever asked me to bribe them and i have and i'm saying it genuinely because i also know so many people who had to go through this experience and had to uh and i'm not trying to say like oh this is not true ukraine is like very anti-corrupt it's not true ukraine is a very corrupt country and unfortunately because of the fact that we have a lot of factors to look into the reason why um corruption exists it to me it's like a very sad reality and i i don't want to make fun of it to be honest anymore because maybe like back some like in the past i would also find it funny but now i'm just like that's just sad because people have to like the reason why this um culture not culture but like this tendency exists is because of the fact that you know institutions are weak and the way the government supports people is like almost non-existent and the whole system of oligarchy not functioning and the transition from the so-called communism to capitalist structure has left people very much in a big void of insecurity and poverty. So I think it's important to mention this as well when we talk about bribery in Ukraine. And yeah, I never really had experience with it uh, myself, which is I guess lucky because I also know that it happens a lot, but I'm sorry you had to experience it. And I hope that people who travel in uh, around Ukraine or to Ukraine don't have to experience it. I'm sorry that it happened to you. I mean, it's a really shitty experience for locals. It's kind of can be kind of a fun story for an international <laughs> Westerner coming from a rich country. It's like, lol, did I accidentally just bribe someone? 
it's uh, not a thing you get to experience every day. Nathan tends to repeat his stories a lot. What? Okay, but... Okay, so something that I haven't spoken about before, but about the same kind of subject-ish, is um, uh, something that I'm always, like, amazed by was um, when when COVID started its, like, first outbreak around Europe, you know, when it started to really kick off around kind of March, April time. Like, the UK had, like, invested, I think, eight billion pounds or some shit like this in building an app to be able to do test and trace even to this to, to today they have not managed to do it properly they had to delay it again and again and again it took them almost a year to get the first version that was really fucked up and didn't really work out the door and yeah the test and trace system is basically non-existent but like the government was always about oh we need to build a world build world beaten world beaten test and trace system i'm like what the fuck um because i was looking just random facebook feed some uh, like eop friends in ukraine who kind of came back in april you know so like a month after the outbreak started to kick off and already in april there was a standardized app in which you had to send five selfies a day that they are geolocated selfies to make sure you're quarantining. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember reading on someone's feed that they, that they, she slept in one of the days and didn't mm-hmm. hear our alarm and then was awoken by police knocking on her door because she hadn't sent in her selfie. Mm-hmm. And it's like that test and trace system that they designed and managed to launch basically within a month was like way superior than the UK's managed to do in years of trying to build a world beating system. Mm-hmm. And, I always kind of find like looking at stuff like that to be funny because you're like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of countries in Western Europe start to look down at Eastern Europe and they're like, oh, you should come to us for advice and stuff like this. When actually you kind of like look at outbreaks like this and you see, no, Western Europe are the fuck up countries. We should go to them for advice and to actually learn from them to kind of see how they are actually going forward with this stuff in a much better way. I guess in that specific example, there's some privacy issues with forcing people to take selfies daily. That's not something your legislation maybe supports in every country, but in general, it's a good point. I feel like it's a very complex topic because it, I don't think it's a good comparison because there are a lot of things Ukraine is doing wrong when it comes to management of the COVID situation. And I, like, yeah, there was some, uh, like, endeavors to keep it under control, but the fact that I think less than 50% of Ukraine is vaccinated is one of the big issues that is not fully like it's not really addressed properly i would say and i don't i also don't like this division of like all western countries look down on the eastern countries because they just see themselves as not again quote-unquote developed and then actually like I don't like this narrative of, oh, actually, these countries, they may have something to say to us, like the superior countries. And I find it a little bit problematic, Nathan, I'm sorry, but I find mm-hmm. it's important to understand that the whole idea of a developed country, first of all, is very questionable. It's a, mm-hmm. countries which are seen as developed are the countries which 
due to mostly colonialism and other mm-hmm. resources exploitation and people's exploitation mm-hmm. have uh, given themselves a better kind of economy and economy is also what is economy who benefits from economy you know like economy is working not for the well-being of the people but for also accumulation of some resources and usually benefiting for the people who are already very rich and mm-hmm. i don't yeah i don't like how this narrative is like oh actually maybe we can learn from this very you know undeveloped countries maybe they have also something interesting going on i think it should be also i think this lens should go away of like what is developed what is undeveloped and you know like starting to look at areas without having this like kind of colonial lens Mm. filter on because i feel like a lot also in the covid management and with the who and again with all this like the vaccine hoarding and the way that situations are being portrayed in the media you can still see a lot of influence from this like capitalist colonialist narrative which i disapprove of and yeah hopefully people can also start to be more critical like that's something that i feel like covid and the time that we spent at home maybe at least for me gave me some more time to educate myself and learn more about why we have some specific inequalities like even in uh, having access to vaccines and the more you learn the more you realize how much things depend on the geographical and political Mm. preferences and also injustices so that's something to keep in mind also i think Mm. yeah and it kind of came came to mind because I remember at the, at the beginning of like the first kind of COVID surge uh, back in like early 2020, paper, uh, over here, paper after paper were taking this very, yeah, this, this very up themselves approach by saying, oh, what's going to happen to Africa? during this new pandemic as things start to spread you know yes we have this kind of sanitation levels in these hospitals and this funding for these health services and stuff like this but what about sub-saharan africa and there's article after article kind of saying about all of the different warnings and like how things are going to be so messed up uh it's going to be fine in like the developed countries but it's other places and specifically really focusing on like sub-saharan africa but then you started to look at how the figures started and you kind of look at their progress over two years and you're like, no, <laughs> it is like the exact opposite. It's, um, I, yeah, the, 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 the worst place in on the African continent for COVID was the place that has the most white people in power, which was South Africa. So, mm. I mean, <laughs> outside of South Africa, I mean, Africa as a continent had like one of the lowest rates <laughs> in the world compared to probably the highest rate in the world is Europe and mm. North America. So kind of like taken from that kind of lens as well of, I guess it's kind of like racism where at the end of the day, we can't just say, let's be colorblind because then we're basically denying the reality of people's lived experiences. So then being aware that there is this post-colonial 
approach basically embedded within us and in our subconscious and the way that we kind of then narrate the world around us, then I guess that's where I start to kind of like look into to kind of like finding these kind of things where you're like, well, people would expect it to go one way. So for example, it would be, oh, the UK is trying to build the best test and tracing system in the world, uh, but then takes like a year to two years to actually launch it and it doesn't actually work. And then they basically abandoned it anyway. Whereas mm. then kind of Ukraine, who they were then looking down to in that perspective, were able to do things so much faster or many other countries where there is this kind of post-colonial view ingrained in them and it's like examples like these you don't kind of see talked about too much in the media because i feel like they they kind of almost reverse or attempt Mm. to reverse that or to to kind of crack the image of superiority of certain countries or stuff like this and it isn't necessarily a popular yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on like analyzing the media narratives, uh, so I don't want to go too much into this question because I really feel like I'm not, yeah, I don't have the knowledge to really like debate about these things, but I definitely agree with you that it's just also the way I see it on Ukrainian media is like, oh, what is, what are the countries in Western Europe doing? What are the countries in the, mm-hmm. US, like, I don't know, Australia, New Zealand, you know, like the countries which are kind of the seen as this West, what are they doing and what we should learn from them? And I honestly hate this so much because like, Mm -hmm. we should stop romanticizing and idealizing the West. Mm -hmm. And that's just a lot. There is a lot to understand and there is a lot to criticize, but I just wish people were focusing on the local situations and really trying to, uh, you know, kind of adjust to what is this specific place needing and not just like taking whatever other countries are doing as like something that will definitely stick to you. So I think that's something important. Mm -hmm. Of course, like read about other techniques and what helps other people and so on. But I think it's important to also just understand what works best in the local situation. So hope it makes sense. It's also interesting to put it into perspective of this kind of not developed or undeveloped countries. It's easy to compare England and Ukraine. But then there's also the third perspective of these countries such as Russia or China, where the narrative from especially a political perspective that the mainstream media often follows is that we are doing our own thing, fuck whatever they're doing in the West. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole different scale of how the entire power structure responds to critical situations and responds to different actions taken in different kinds of places. But I think they're definitely correct there, Mariam, that we shouldn't we should try to aim to, you know, share best practices and try and see what where those fit in the local people instead of just blindly following whoever has the biggest voice mm-hmm. in the political sphere. Exactly. I also want to make sure that the way I also framed it, it's not like we need to just, uh, you know, not follow whatever West is doing. It's about everything. I, I'm not. I don't want to also 
because I know that in Russian narrative, there is like, whatever they are doing, we should not do. And I also am not a fan of that narrative for obvious reasons. It's just about the fact that, yeah, we need to, of course, like, we need to be just more uh, sober about whatever we see in the media. And mm. in Ukraine, there is a tendency to just romanticize a little bit too much the West. And that's just mm. what I mean. I am also not... Like, the Russian narrative is just its own reality. Like, I don't understand what's going on there. But uh, we also shouldn't be too uncritical of the Western politics either. Yeah. Have you heard of uh, Paris Syndrome? No, please enlighten us. It's it's an actual uh, classified... Ah, Yeah, yeah, okay, I think... mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's mainly with Japanese tourists who go to Paris... Uh, with the idea of Paris is this incredible, perfectly clean, luxurious city of the dreams and through every fairy tale and every kind of Disney creation, you kind of get to see it again and again in this way. And then you kind of go there and the amount of litter on the streets, the like Paris is very known for bad, for like unpolite customer service that especially like a Japanese audience would not be used to being spoken to like that or kind of like going to venues uh, that are as dirty as like what they would then see there. And suddenly they have like this dream that's shattered mm-hmm. and yeah, they need to be hospitalized and then sent back over to Japan to go through psychotherapy for this. It's okay, uh, it's what? an actual, you can search it. If you, if you search on, on Wikipedia, or, or, if, if you Google Paris syndrome, You'll see it is a legit thing. And there is a 24-hour hotline uh, for Japanese tourists who get Paris syndrome. It's a thing. But like for me, like this is a perfect like example that describes like what you're saying there of we kind of build these dreams and we build these narratives and we kind of say the grass is greener over mm-hmm. here. And then for some people, it's like, yes, the grass is greener over here. And then instead of actually dealing with different realities, we just mm. deal with narratives. And then it becomes those politicians who can like talk about narratives one way or the other. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think we should just be, you know, we need to be aware of the good practices and be like, okay, that's a good practice, good for them. Do you think it would work for us and be like critical of what can actually be um, applicable to your to your region to your country i don't know but in general people just need to look at the things through different lenses before jumping into conclusions and before uh, idealizing things that's just general way of living i think that's would be nice to have uh, how would you guys kind of say that how eyp impacted you within this understanding of narratives so you kind of come from your town your bubble etc and start to explore other countries other cultures and stuff like this did you feel that when you kind of then started entering this in EYP that you started to kind of see more that basically the world is just built up of multiple narratives and they coexist and there aren't right answers and stuff like this or did you kind of fall more on let's say EYP culture starting to like align certain values and saying this is the correct way or like how how was your kind of exploration the discovery of that how much time do we have i am (laughs) i'm so okay this is 
sorry, Joel, do you also want to answer that? Or is it just uh, for... Oh, go, go, go. Okay. Let, let's all throw something in. I have so much to say to this question. So buckle up. I have uh, opinions. But first, I think that something that we need to understand is it's not necessarily EVP that creates all these narratives. But to me personally, it was that EVP was the bridge from the, let's say, like, I don't know, a place, an island where I was, where my mind was at the time. And that was a very necessary bridge that took me to other places from where other bridges took me and so on. So I think it was like a very crucial uh, place for me to develop my values, to understand where I stand in the world, to learn and to also get the skills that I need to learn. And I think that's something that I also wanted to talk on about the fact that in different regions in Europe, since EYP is working operating in Europe, we have huge inequalities when it comes to access to education, just like to at least let's focus on that. I'm coming from Eastern Ukraine, and I don't want to complain about access to education because we had a chance to go to a public school pretty much for free. So I had access to knowledge, which is great. And I'm very grateful for this. However, the system of education in my hometown, at least, was not giving me enough of understanding on what politics is, on what democracy is. So I was basically already growing up in a democratic country, which just transitioned from, uh, you know, authoritarian Soviet Union to this new democracy that is uh, Ukraine. However, we did not have any kind of understanding of what democracy actually is. We didn't have a subject which actually taught us well what we are as citizens what is our role in the country that we live in it was very like my understanding of what country i live in the politics was very much shaped by the populist propaganda i saw on tv which is owned by oligarchs all the channels Mm -hmm. in ukraine we pretty much have diversity of opinions but this diversity is diversity of different oligarchs opinions so of course like nobody taught me how to think critically growing up nobody taught me what democracy was and how to vote and why elections matter and like a big crucial part for me in my understanding of the world was when we had the Maidan revolution and then we were, you know, like having annexation of Crimea and then occupation of Donbass. And when you are graduating high school and you are living in this constant mode of anxiety of not understanding whether tomorrow your hometown is going to be occupied or not, you start to really question things a lot more and you're forced mm. to really understand where is this coming from? What is a nation? What is this like? Who is who? Whom does this territory belong to? And like, does it actually belong to anyone? And so I started having a lot of questions that I couldn't find answers to, which is partially why I also applied for history for my bachelor's. But I also didn't really understand like the whole idea of why EU is better, like for Ukraine. Like, what is it exactly about, like? European Union that is also making Ukrainians, you know, revolve and stand and actually risk their lives. And then at that very moment of my life, I, uh, when I moved to Kiev, 
I found out there was an EVP session. It was European Youth Parliament. And I was like, well, maybe there they have some answers. Maybe I can learn more about the way European Union works. And then I can give myself those answers. And then after the first session, there was like the, gosh, I forgot, Understanding Europe. And Understanding Europe was like such a great platform to understand the unions and I was like okay so there are like very strong institutions and then people there is like a very direct democracy and so on and I started to be more aware of why Ukrainian people were really interested in having a similar kind of strength and anti-corruption and having a strength of democracy strength of institutions and so I think that was a big step for me towards like having a critical perception of European Union, but first through this lens. First, it was through this very optimistic, positive change. And then Mm -hmm. now I don't have a very positive, like I'm not like, I don't see EU as the best form of itself anymore. I see also some issues with the European Union. However, I still like, I was in the beginning of my journey having a lot of appreciation for European Union. And then another thing that what happens in Ukraine and like maybe some other post-Soviet countries which where UAP also functions is I think UAP kind of fills in this vacuum first of all for this uh, political education but also it helps people to have contact contacts with people from other countries and so learn more and also just you know be challenged by having this like social interactions with people from other cultures and also improve your English, which is like, we don't have access to very good knowledge of English in Ukraine because you don't really learn English so well in schools unless you go to like a really good school. And uh, most of the people don't. And then if you don't have money for private English tutor, you also don't have a really good skill, um, good skills in English. So that's something also that EVP kind of provides. You can improve your English skills and then you also start to learn how to do academic writing through mm-hmm. like preparing the topic overviews. I think that taught me a lot more about writing than I learned in my school, honestly. Like the things we had to write in school was just like so distant from having anything to do with your personal experience from your personal research just like summarizing what someone else in the book said and just trying not to have any critical um, thought on it which was just like not helpful for a developing brain and so in EVP you had this access to understanding how to write topic overviews and then all the soft skills that you learned like having Mm. understanding how to feedback people of course like more in the role of officials and understanding how to work with dif- with people who have different understandings of the world, different uh, values. All of these things are things that I believe should be taught in schools. In the world, in a perfect world that I would see, we wouldn't need NGOs that fill in all this vacuum. And it's said that in many countries like Ukraine, the only access to knowledge like this comes from NGOs. EVP is not the only NGO in Ukraine which does work like this, but it's one of the big ones. And I'm very grateful that I had access to all this knowledge, but I'm also like, why don't we have access to this 
you know, from the formal education, that's just something that makes you think, because I know that, for example, in, um, yeah, I don't want to also, again, idealize it, but I've heard that in Sweden, people even learn today more about mental health in schools. Mental health, like, if you say mental health in Ukrainian high school, you, like, people are going to freak out. And it's not something that maybe happens today anymore, but when I was growing up, you mental health was never an issue. Like, the closest to psychology you would do is, like, personality types. I don't know. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. And I just wish we... Yeah, I'm really, really grateful to EYP for being this bridge. Just wish that there was more support from the system to ed- educational institutions and um for children to have access to these things you know so that everyone has access to it because evap is still a very exclusive circle it's not for everyone mm-hmm. of course so but for me to answer your question sorry i really tend to <laughs> drift off um yeah i think that what i do today comes and i don't want to it's not an exaggeration. It's very much because of EYP, because I mm-hmm. now study European urban studies. And I, w- I reached this part of my life because at su- in some session, I had a topic about sustainable urban development or something. And I was like, that's so interesting. And then I chaired a topic like this. And then I, in Ljubljana, the whole session was basically about it. And I was just like so much more and more interested in this topic and EYP gave me that platform for me to go into something that I am interested in in a very safe space learn more about it build my understanding then I could even like the internship that I did was because I also knew someone from EYP who was also doing it professionally and I was like "Ooh, Mm. that is something that I can do professionally this is great then I applied for an internship and then I got into a university where I study it and now I do an internship in Vienna and I study homelessness. So everything just really came together and I think a starting point was EYP, if you think about it. EYP gave me a lot of bridges to reach the point where I am in my values and interests today. Damn. I'm just going to pat myself on the back for asking the perfect question. (laughs) To, uh, to, to ignite Mariam's fire as you should and to heal us. <laughs> I remember I, I learned a big lesson in 2014 so I th- I was going into Ukraine no not into Ukraine I was going to Italy to chair a topic and it was AFET and it was about Russia and Ukraine mm. and this was 2014 and we I started writing my TO in January and we had the session in April so, of course, the thing is, things were evolving so quick, week mm-hmm. by week, that whatever I put in that TO wouldn't, uh, and th- there wasn't like great, great summaries or easy access content to truly take a step back and see everything from a third perspective. And the only way I kind of felt I could do this, and I started this way, and then somebody warned me against it, and they were definitely right, and I fucked up, is uh, I thought, okay, if I cannot somehow create this beautiful summary from a third perspective, all I can do is to kind of show or give access to two different perspectives and let them see from there. Mm-hmm. However, on the one hand, articles talking from the Ukrainian perspective, a lot of these were based on facts, based on specific figures, specific research, specific findings. 
where when I would find an RT article, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. It's it's not on that same level, uh, and it's not necessarily backed up with actual facts and stuff like this. The things things don't need to be checked in the background if it's portraying the message that they want. Full stop. This is the message that goes out and can be controlled to whatever extent that they wanted. And so I gave my delegates access to both content, and I I I then spoke to a friend about this, and he said, "Yeah, you fucked up because." they're not able to compare a with b correctly because now they're going to kind of see that that let's say stuff that they read in russia today is really really convincing in its perspective and the way it kind of like narrates everything that's happening and they would then look at this more watered down approach through guided on evidence-based and they'd be like yeah <clears throat> that doesn't really resonate as much that there isn't this like strong kind of will through so my committee were very 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 much on like the pro-russian side uh they kind of dove into those russia today articles and they went complete that side it's not that i i'm there because i need to push them on one side or another but i was giving them an unfair debate Mm-hmm. I do not agree with the statement that you fucked up by giving them these two opinions. I think you fucked up by not teaching your delegates source analysis. Because that <laughs> is something That's that true. really makes the difference. You give them these two sides, but then you're like, now let's analyze the sources. And then once you analyze the sources, mm-hmm. what is your you know judgments afterwards? And I think that's something that is a step a little bit like um, forward that not many yeah. people do. And that's something that maybe it's just coming from like a history uh, BA that I'm just like, you gotta check your sources. You need to be yeah. available, like you need to be a- able to understand where this information is coming from. What kind of media source is it? Who owns this media source? All these things. Definitely. And I feel that 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 kind of relates. So what for for the past half hour or so, we've been talking about narratives and particularly narratives in EYP on a high level. So understanding narratives around democracy, narratives around the way we kind of say the world is or we should approach the world or things should be like this. But then I guess if we take the same perspective and from what we've been discussing here about, like, let's say, the source analysis side and kind of apply that to more the granular level in EYP. Where in EYP, we our main system is monkey see, monkey do, right? You see somebody who's in power in EYP, it could be the president, it could be the editor, the HO, whoever, somebody within that leadership team who does something, you're already looking up to them almost like a god when, when you enter that session in, in a lower position. And it's very easy for whatever they say from their own subjectivity to be taken as objective, as an object perspective and said this is the way things should be done and yeah i i'm right in my opinion because i heard it from this person and that person heard it from the previous person that person heard it from the previous person and when we kind of approach knowledge management uh with the it does tend to be people's subjective realities being transformed into narratives that almost seem objective and then is taught from one session to the other to the other. So on the one hand, I definitely agree that it can impact things such as our understanding of democracy or our kind of way forward in terms of larger political changes. But even every small thing in EIP, I feel is also 
impacted by this monkey see monkey do approach mm. why do you think that is because we're a session to session organization I guess yes. We, we we have NCs. We have the BNC. We have the IA. We have GB. We have all these beautiful acronyms uh, representing lots of people who are doing lots and lots and lots of amazing hard work in the background uh, that we've talked about again and again on show that we have not taken the time to actually do that ourselves because we're session to session people and we kind of feel like so many people at EYP are these session to session people and when you're going from session to session we don't necessarily have specific knowledge management structures in place for knowledge transfer. Instead, it happens to be, if you happen to be in this session at this time with this person, you're going to be in the know. And then within UIP, we very much have these cliques and these kind of small groups of like the popular people here and the popular people there. And you need to kind of break in and to break in, you kind of need to follow the narrative that they hold and it's very easy to be kind of pressured uh, from this kind of the way that we socialize in UIP into believing a certain set of perspectives to be fact. Like I, I was very, very quickly led into the people and process approach and shitting on academic. And then I would just shit on academic, not wanting to listen to their side, not wanting to kind of go further. And I, I, I kind of look at back at myself and I used to do that all the time. As soon as I with certain individuals and i'm like oh my god they have the voice of truth i would listen to Jonas Darega, and everything he said i'm like oh my god okay i just accept no question uh same thing with chris trip with maria monalesco with like some, some people i say from my time that i would call them like the eyp legends whenever i would hear anything from them i'm like this is fact and mm-hmm. then i would run with that and talk down anyone who disagrees Oh yeah, I I see where you're coming from. And I think that there is a few things here that we need to reflect on. First of all, I don't want to like, you know, frame it only towards EVP because EVP and what we do in EVP is just reflecting patterns that we also do in our real life. And the same things happen outside of EVP. And I don't think it's only something that we need to Uh, link to the EVP culture, first of all. But second of all, I think it's also something that we need to understand that it's an organization full of teenagers. I'm sorry, like the level of emotional maturity I had at the age of 17 and the level I have now at the age of 26, it's just like very different people. And you can't really expect people to figure these things out at this age. I mean, we would be able to expect if we had, again, if EYP wasn't the only filler of this vacuum that our states, our cities, our schools don't provide because we are coming to EYP to learn the skills, to get emotionally mature in some senses, to get more academically developed and so on because we don't have access to these things in our schools and in our communities Mm -hmm. i mean again speaking from my personal experience i don't want to generalize but i think whenever we criticize things we need to look at we need to really understand where is the root of this issue is it really in eyp or is it maybe a little bit outside of eyp and how understanding that it might be outside of eyp how can we be critical of this and maybe make improvements in EYP, but being aware of this? And I think it's challenging 
but um, it's also important to uh, look at the bigger picture in these cases, I would mm. say. That's a good wrap up. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to add one thing that is from, from kind of like listening to, to like the way you approach this stuff. I feel it like listen to let's say myself versus you Maryam, and the way we kind of talk about this stuff kind of shows two very different approaches where you are being so rational and actually breaking things down and not running in with assumptions, but actually looking at what assumptions you have going on. And it's kind of like moving from this in a very like data-driven evidence-based way of wanting to understand the world. And then I guess what I've kind of fallen more into is almost like this kind of populist way of uh, having an idea, linking it to an example and saying some impressive words that then kind of gets people to rally behind it. And then we charge forward in this kind of way. And I feel the culture we have in UIP um, allows for people who focus more on that charismatic approach with speeches and rallying behind people behind an idea is very easy for them to succeed and to fly up and to do all these different roles and get this praise and be hurt, listened to. Whereas like this other approach of like what you're introducing us a lot more to is a way more rational, way more kind of step-by-step step and actually thinking about different assumptions, stuff along the way. Uh, maybe in many circles of EYP, it could almost be seen as people like, oh no, that's too slow. We need decisions quicker. And so even if it's a better approach and it would get us to a much better understanding of so many things, maybe we don't necessarily have the right culture to allow that to dominate mm. more than more this kind of populist charismatic approach. I see you. Yeah. But again, is it in EVP? I'm sorry. Like, let's look at the leaders we elect. I've, yeah. I, I, I don't even see Literally. It's not about EVP, you know, like the things that no. the, um, I mean, of course, we as an organization should address these things and we should think how we can challenge these narratives. But I don't think we, we, we should also understand where it's coming from, from a huge mm -hmm. void of disinformation, from a huge void of ignorance that we just don't mm -hmm. feel in as we grow up. And of course, these things have, they replicate themselves in this kind of mm -hmm. smaller cultures. And that makes sense why they appear. It's not something that EVP, you know, uh, grows within it. It's just something EVP replicates. But we should definitely challenge these things and see how, uh, what we can do better to, you know, get rid of this ignorance. And I think that's the point of organization, getting rid of ignorance, teaching people of critical thinking of being more rational and understanding that sometimes being a bit slower but more rational is more sustainable in the long term than being populist and going for charisma so how, how do we step away from the nathan approach and move more to a mariam approach that is a big question I, how much more time do we have <laughs> I have like negative 20 minutes. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> Maybe volume two someday. Trying to keep so Joel has been the person actually making sure this podcast still continues all the time because 
like, you know, uh, what, 20 minutes before the podcast, the reason why he sends the message to kind of say, remember, there's a podcast that we're doing at this time isn't for you, isn't for the guest, because the guest already knows, because the guest is doing this once in a while, and it's like, cool, I'm going to book this in my calendar, I'm making sure I'm free at this time. No, it's for me, because I'd say one in every three podcasts, I just don't turn up, and I'm like, oh, shit, and I have to, like, run to a computer somewhere to kind of jump on and start recording. I was literally, so tw- 20 minutes before we started our podcast here, I was at a friend's place because I had forgotten that we had the podcast today. And then I saw that message and I was, I said to the guys, okay, guys, sorry, I'll be back in a couple hours. I need to cycle home quickly to do a podcast. And they're like, what? I was like, yeah, I'll explain later. You are making me feel very special right now. 